And let me point you to that guide really quick if you've already got yours pulled out that we say pretty often, uh, we encourage you guys to be in the Word for yourself, as in to read the Bible for yourself, okay? Translation, right? Uh, that we be in the Bible, um, even if you've never read the Bible before, even if you've only heard the Bible uh, really read or taught from on a Sunday gathering kind of situation like this, I encourage you, like, start today. Like, just go to the Bible um, and, and read, and there's a great plan in there, it's a simple plan, where you can read a portion of the Bible, and you can just ask God to speak to you, and just see what he says, okay? And this week in particular, I think, is huge, because next Sunday we celebrate Easter, Easter that's right, Resurrection Day, and so as we celebrate that, we're going to also remember what Christ has done for us, and so through our journey in the book of Mark, we've been walking with Jesus as he continues to move towards the cross towards his, his sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And this week in particular will be a time for us to really reflect over what he has done uh, for us. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. And, uh, and if you're like me, um, I'm just in awe of that because I realize I don't deserve anything that he has given me. And the thought that he would die for me is just overwhelming. And so this week, I hope that that will be fresh in my heart and hopefully in your heart, even as we read through the book of Mark and we remember. And we just take time to slow down and to say, God, help me to like, not just know this intellectually, but to really believe in my heart that you did this for me. And to, to reflect on some of the details of the story as he was mocked and spit on and beaten and a crown of thorns was placed on his head and then ultimately nails driven into his hands and his feet. Why? So that we could have life. So we could have life. That's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus that we, we preach and we proclaim. And so I'm excited about doing that this morning even. So as you guys are in Mark chapter 11, uh, before we get to that, I want to tell you a few stories, okay? I, I could tell you a lot of stories about um, conversations that I've had with people over the last few years, even since I've moved to South Austin, uh, about spiritual things, about church, about God, about Jesus, about the Bible. Um, you know, I've learned that if I pray when I get up in the morning and I say, God, would you just give me opportunities to talk to people about spiritual things? I find that it happens. <laughs> like that every day somebody crosses my path at least once, if not twice or three times or four times. I know it sounds crazy. And somehow we end up in a spiritual conversation. Now, I can play the pastor card because when they ask me what I do, right, then I can kind of go, oh yeah, this is what I do. And they can start to use that to get, get to the spiritual stuff. But even without that, like I find that if I will just be open, God will give me an opportunity to talk to people about the gospel and about Jesus. And I continue to find that there's so, there so much confusion around what we really believe as uh, Christians, okay? And, and so just three stories from the last seven days in my life. Uh, the first one, when we were in Mexico uh, last week, we had several conversations as we would walk the streets, and I'm talking like real poverty, like just these little narrow streets between homes that have just sort of piecemealed together. And, and as you're walking, uh, just praying, okay, God, give us an opportunity. And, and you know, the, the difference between the United States and Mexico is that when you go to their door, they actually like welcome you. <laughs> it's not like you can hear them running around in there like, don't answer it, don't answer it, you know? Uh, there's not a no solicitor badge on every door, you know, sign on every door. Uh, when you go to a, a home in Mexico, they like say, oh, come on in, come eat some of my food, come hang out with my family. You're like, wow, you have like hardly anything and you're so hospitable. It's like a lost art in our, our world, right? We're so skeptical and cynical uh, of people. So we met this lady the second day we were there walking around and we had a team of five of us and we had just prayed, God, would you just, would you open up our eyes to see what you want us to see and, and just to have a conversation with someone you want us to have a conversation with. I won't get into all the details of that, 
but I can tell you pretty quickly, we were able to assess that what she had done over the course of her life is she had grown up exposed to the religious version of Christianity where morality was kind of the, the, the highest goal. Being a good person was kind of the end that, that they were shooting for. So what happened as we had this conversation is we started talking about Jesus and about the need to have Jesus forgive our sins. And she's like, yes, I get that. But what about how I perform from day to day? What about how I obey him? Like, what happens when I disobey him? And, and to the point where she literally said, look, I, I love what you're saying about Jesus, but I don't want to be a Christian because if I'm a Christian and then I screw up and I blow it, like, then I'm just going to feel like a failure. So it's, for me, it's probably easier just not even to go there. And if I had to guess, there's probably some of you in this room today who feel that way. Now, beautiful story here is that over the course of an hour, I mean, it was a lengthy conversation through translators and working back and forth. And and I I had a translator with me who had this gift of gab. And so I would say like one sentence and then she would say like eight. And so it's like it took us a long time to talk. But through an hour-long conversation, um, she finally came to the place where she said, look, I don't really know how to get my brain about, around what you're saying, but there's something that's just calling me to just surrender. And I said, that's the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And she said, I, I said, do you, do you want to just pray? And just said, Jesus, I can't figure this out, but I'll receive you into my life. And she said, yes. And she did. And I can tell you right now the beauty of what happens when somebody's eyes light up for the first time. The change of the face the change of the countenance, when all of a sudden the burden of feeling like I cannot be good enough is lifted, and there was just like light. And like she could see visibly like God was bringing salvation to her. Now we're in America where we just don't see a lot of that stuff, and and it's around us, but we, we just are so inoculated to Christianity sometimes. We just miss it, but it's just beautiful to see salvation come to someone who knew all of the elements of the gospel, but was unable to receive them until that moment. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit said, come and receive, and she did. It changed her. So that was one story. Beat down, weighed down by the thought of trying to be good enough. The second story I want to share with you is one of a guy on the plane with us on the the, the plane ride home. Um, He was from uh, Ohio, was going to Ohio State University. Family originally from India, and his mom moved over with him and his sister and was raising him here in the States. And uh, I don't really know all of her background, but basically her approach in parenting regarding religion was, hey, I'm just going to raise my children exposed to everything and then let them make a choice. She kind of has drifted towards uh, being a Sikh, uh, which is an interesting mystical type of religion that you might find in the Middle Eastern world. And so she's kind of moved that direction. Well, uh, he had gone from the time he was younger uh, to mosques, to Buddhist temples, uh, to different contexts where they were worshiping gods, different types of gods, uh, even some things where he was around Hindus. And then every Christmas, his mom would say, hey, we're going to go to the Christian church and just kind of experience that. And at the end of his experience of growing up in that context, he decided that religion wasn't for him and that all those religions really were basically the same process of people trying to be good and trying to attain a certain status. And so he just said, look, it's not worth it. I'm just going to choose atheism. And so as we sat on the plane with him, we didn't have a long time to talk to him. And he just described why he was at a place where he thought atheism was the best choice for him intellectually. And why it was the best choice for him, because he really saw that religion was, for the most part, irrelevant and or just really taxing, and he didn't want to subject himself to that. Okay? That's where he was. Now, the third 
conversation really didn't happen face-to-face. This one actually happened over Facebook, okay, which is always dangerous, right? Don't have any, any uh, like legitimate, serious conversations over Facebook. It's just very difficult. Just like I say, don't, don't have any kind of conflict over text. Not good. Emo- emoji cons are not going to help you through that, right? So here's the thing. I'm there on Facebook, and I'm looking at the, the Point Community Church Facebook page, which we have one, go like it. And, uh, and as we're there, um, after being gone to Mexico, I noticed that this one guy had posted something on the Facebook page. And uh, I was like kind of curious, so I went and clicked on it, and it said, I'll point you to somewhere, but it won't be Jesus. Now, um, if you know our tagline as a church, it's that we point people to life in Christ. We genuinely believe that life is found in Jesus. It's not in us. It's not in church. It's in Jesus. So I prayed about it because I wanted to say, yeah, you jerk. No, um, <laughs> no I, I didn't do that, okay? I said, hey, listen, um, I don't know your story. Grace to you. In fact, it's still on the, pa- the Facebook page <laughs> uh, because I'm like, I'm just going to leave it. I'm not going to delete it. I said, grace to you. Um, you know, I don't know your story. If you ever need us to serve you in any way, we're available, praying for you. Just kind of left it at that. To which he then went and liked his own comment. And then he came on and said something to the effect of, hey, man, is there a lot of money in being a religious services provider? I think we should, like, I'm thinking about getting a new job to make some more money. I should get into that. Obviously, facetiously saying, like, the way he views Christianity, the way he views church and organized religion is that it's a great way to make money, but nothing really true behind all that, which I didn't like. Okay, so I didn't go push the like button on that one. Um, but what I did notice is then he went and proceeded to, to rate, review our church and put a one-star rating on it and said that we tell people that God created the whole world and that this man came and saved the whole world, but that there's lots of plot holes in our story. Okay, Now, I tell you that because here's the thing. The third camp... Not the first one of people that are just beat down by seeing Christianity as just moral, morality and rules. Or the second story of Ark, the, the Indian uh, young man who basically believed that, you know, uh, atheism is the better option because it's just religion is irrelevant and Christianity is just another religion. To this man who was truly angry, like truly angry and bitter and frustrated. I don't know his story, but I've been praying for him all week because my heart has just ached for him that he believes that that's all we're about, Right? Now, again, I can't change his mind, and I may never have the opportunity to meet this young guy who's posting this stuff, but I do pray that he would know that the gospel is truly good news because the way he perceives it is that it's not good news. And so maybe today you find yourself in one of those three spots. It's very possible, and maybe if you, you aren't in one of those three spots today, maybe you were before you put your trust in Christ. I don't know, and maybe you even find a tendency in you to drift one of these three ways. Because just because we become a Christian doesn't mean that we've got it all figured out, that it's all clear in our brains, or that we don't ever struggle again. Agreed? So these three things, I think, are good umbrellas for a lot of what I get in conversations with people as I walk through life on a daily basis. So I want us to look at a story in the book of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12. It's a very interesting story. And for those of you that haven't been with us over the last eight weeks or so, we've been working through the book of Mark, and we've been looking at Jesus as the servant king. Uh, It's a great descriptor of him because he was the king, and yet he laid down his kingship to come, put on human flesh, to walk among us, and truly serve. In fact, in in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says that he came to serve. Not to be served, but to serve, and even to the point of giving his life as a ransom for many. 
to pay the price that we should pay for our freedom. Jesus did that. That's how he served. He was the ultimate servant. And I'm grateful for that today. I'm humbled by that today, as I said a while ago. But I want us to look in this passage because there's been a growing tension mounting between Jesus and the religious leaders. These religious leaders, they love the fact that they were elevated in their status based on their moral performance, based on the fact that they had memorized the Torah, which was all their scripture, the Old Testament, we call it. They'd memorized it. They had these long flowing tassels they would wear. They would talk about how they were so close to God and they would pray and they they obeyed all these laws, even to the degree that would literally, they would tithe from their spice rack. Anybody tithed your spices lately? Tithe in scriptures a 10%, right? 10%, a tenth of it. They would literally give 10% or tenth of their spices to God and they would say, look at us, we are so awesome. We are so incredible. We are so righteous. We are so good. And Jesus all of a sudden comes on the scene and he says, look, it's not about any of that. It's so much deeper, so much more more about what God is doing and has done for you in your inability to save yourself, in your lack of righteousness. They didn't want to hear that. The tension was growing. The crowds were starting to follow Jesus' insight and his instruction. And so he's becoming this powerful figure. And they're looking for ways to just knock him off, get rid of him, shut him up. Ultimately, we know they did through putting him on a cross. But in this passage, here he is. He's in Jerusalem. He's come to the epicenter of the tension. He's come to the place where all of the angst and all of the hardship of of opposition has come against him. And he's there with his disciples, and they're coming in daily to the temple. So in verse 12, it says this. The next day, when they came out from Bethany, he was hungry. If you ever wondered if Jesus was a man, there you go. He was hungry. Okay. Now it goes on and says, After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. Now, just a couple things. One, anybody like figs? Okay, I do not like figs, man. Even fig newtons. Like, why wrap a cookie around something and ruin the cookie, right? Um, but here's the thing. This is this fig tree. He's hungry, and so he sees it has leaves on it, so it's green, and he walks over to it. And what does he find? Well, it says when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. So if it's not the season for figs, probably not going to find figs on it, right? So you got to be thinking, okay, what's he doing here? What's this all about? And why does Mark record this silly story? He could record all these things, but he puts this in here. But he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Harsh. (laughs) Poor little fig tree, right? It's not even time for figs. I'm just sitting here hanging out. You come over to me. I don't have figs. And boom, I'm cursed. I can't ever make figs again. What's the deal, right? Not that trees could talk or have feelings. But anyway, you get the point. And his disciples heard it. Then it says, they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex, and he began to do what? Catch this. This is, I love this. How many of you guys think that Jesus was like this docile, chill, laid back, never got frustrated, you know, really kind of a, a mamby-pamby kind of guy, right? Watch what's about to happen. He walks in the temple and he begins to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. I mean, he just shuts the place down. 
All this stuff's going on. All this religious activity's going on. They're selling these sacrifices. They're doing it. They're, they're like, apparently, from what we understand about the context, they've hiked up the price to these ridiculous rates so that they're just making money off these people coming to get these sacrifices in the temple. Uh, they're even exchanging money where they had Roman money and they needed to exchange it to Jewish money in order to get the sacrifices so they couldn't buy it with that Roman money, right? And so just like we see in Mexico uh, or any other place when you go in the world, there's an exchange rate, and then there's the exchange rate you can get from different people because they tag on their amount to make money off of it. You know what I'm talking about? This is going on in the temple, right? And Jesus, he just starts throwing stuff over. He just like comes in and crashes the party, and he's like, enough of this garbage. You guys have turned this place into what? He says he, says he calls it a den of thieves. He says, it is, not, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves, which is also interesting considering that a few days from this point, Jesus is going to be hung on a cross between two thieves, right? He's going to be the one called out and treated like a thief. And he's saying, no, you guys are the thieves. You're the ones that are, are swindlers. You're the one that are taking God's house and turning it into this place of business for your own benefit and gain when it's all about God. Ultimately, even there, he says it's a house of prayer. What is the, what is the goal of prayer? Is the goal of prayer so that we can be religious? Is the goal of prayer really ultimately about what we do for God? Or is the goal of prayer to connect with God. It's to connect with God, isn't it? It's to hear from God. It's for us to come to him and to lay ourselves before him humbly, not pridefully and arrogantly like say, God, here's our sacrifice. Here's, we, here's us in all of our glory. It's actually, we see in another parable where Jesus talks about the, the hypocrite, the, the righteous man who stands up and he says, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like everyone else. And yet one tax collector sits over in the corner and beats his chest and says, oh God, I'm so broken. I'm so messed up. Please forgive me. And this place that was supposed to be a house of prayer, a place of worship to God, had become a place that was more about man and less about God. And it says then in verse 18, then the chief priests and scribes, they heard it and they started looking for a way to destroy him for they were afraid of him. Of course they were afraid of him. I mean, people were like, yeah, go Jesus, Right? Now, it's crazy that, the, that these people who were saying, go Jesus, and were all excited and fired up that he's kicking out the scribes and Pharisees and all these swindlers are the same people that not too long from this point are going to be screaming out, crucify him, which is a reminder of how quickly our hearts can change and the danger of our hearts. But it says they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. There it is again. We've seen it throughout the entire book of Mark that when Jesus taught, people were like, whoa. Like, he's not just your average Joe teacher. He's not just one of the other Pharisees. Like, this guy, when he teaches and he opens his mouth, there is incredible power and authority that he teaches with. And it goes on to say, For they, and whenever the evening came, they would go out of the city. So they would come in, they would go to the temple, they would be a part of this process, and then they would go out. And it says, Early in the morning, verse 20, as they were passing by, they saw the what? The fig tree. There's the fig tree again. And what was wrong with it? It was withered, and it says, from the roots up. It was withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree you cursed is withered. Now, I want you to hold on to that fig tree because we're going to come back to it at the end, okay? But I want us to look again at the middle section here. 
Because this is really the epitome of what Mark has been saying Jesus was against. Jesus was anti-turning God into this religious structure. In fact, I would say it to you this way. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He came to reconcile a relationship. And every single one of us in this room need to understand today that Jesus is not about a religion. He is about a relationship. He is about redeeming mankind in our brokenness. He's about, he's about restoring the gap that's between us that started way back in the garden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, to be selfish, to be prideful, to be arrogant, to believe the lie of the enemy, a wall went up between them and God. And the only way that that wall could be broken down was through a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice, we know, has the name of Jesus. So Jesus didn't come on the scene to start a religion. Even though if you go look on Wikipedia or you go search on the internet, people will say, who is Jesus? Well, he started a religion. No, he didn't start a religion. He didn't even help just take what the Jewish people were doing and just add some new nuances to it. He completely revolutionized what people thought about how we are made right before a holy God. He completely revolutionized what we thought about how people actually become the people that God created us to be. And I think it's very, very important because if not, if we don't get this message this morning, if we don't understand this good news, if we don't get, grasp what Jesus was doing, then we will end up in one of the three camps I described at the beginning of the message. We will just come and we will think that by our own good works, we can earn our way to heaven. And therefore, we will either find ourselves very arrogant and prideful, saying, hey, look at me, I'm such a good person, or we will find ourselves beat down in shame and guilt and fear and say, God, uh, you know, not just I can't be with you, but even Jesus, your sacrifice isn't sufficient. Or you might find yourself just really seeing this whole thing as irrelevant and not worth your time. Or you might even come to the point where you get really angry and bitter. And I've seen people get to this place. So from a springboard in this passage, I want us to jump back into Mark just a little bit from where we've come. We haven't taught from these passages that I'm about to, to, to share with you. And I want to look at three ways that the religion or that religion itself is in opposition to Jesus. Okay? You with me? I want to show you how religion is not the same thing as the gospel. I want you to show how your religion, the practices that mankind created to attain a status to be better people, how that's in opposition to what Jesus actually taught. All right? You still with me? Now, I want to make this caveat. When I use the word religion, I want you to understand that I am not talking about the fact that we should, we should abandon all of our traditions or all that, that God has been doing in his people, the church. Uh, I'm not talking about the fact that we should stop gathering together on Sundays or start, stop doing practices like praying together and worshiping and teaching. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the man-made systems, which, by the way, these things can become that, through which we try to attain, attain right status with God. Okay? So, just want to make sure that I'm clear as we get into this. So, religion. First thing is this. Religion is primarily about condemnation. Christ showed compassion. Religion is primarily about condemnation, but Christ showed compassion. There's a story in Mark chapter 2. And in that story, you don't have to turn there, but I encourage you even this week, go back and read it. We didn't teach on it as we were going through this, these uh, passages in Mark. And it's this really cool story where Jesus is teaching in a house. And the house is packed. So much so that people can't even get in the door. And there's a man who's outside who's, who's paralyzed. He's hurt. He's, he's, uh, we don't know all the details of the story, but we know that he's paralyzed. And it says that four of his friends decide, hey, we've got to get this guy to Jesus. 
His only hope is we got to get him to Jesus. And so if you can imagine with me for a minute sitting in a crowded, packed room, you're listening to this amazing guy teach, and all of a sudden stuff starts falling on your head. Like, man, that's a big bird, right? And all of a sudden you see some light break through, and then they open the ceiling, and the roof starts to come apart, and then these guys start lowering this man who's paralyzed down on a mat. Can you imagine how crazy that would What happens if we're like here on a Sunday morning, you know, and I'm like, ceiling opens up and this guy starts coming down on a mat. And that's what happened. And, and they drop him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith and he says what? He doesn't say you're healed. He says your sins are forgiven. It's the first thing he says, which is powerful. He doesn't say we're just going to take care of the outside. I want to take care of the inside. I want to take care of your deeper need, your bigger issue, which, by the way, I want you to know that when we go on mission trips and we are in a place where we see poverty and we see uh, complete uh, chaos like we saw even last week and you see people living where they eat the trash, they scrounge up whatever they can get to survive, I want you to know that even in those settings, their biggest need is not food. Their biggest need is not food. Do we serve them food? Absolutely. We got to serve them food, and it was awesome to see their faces light up to get some food. But what's their biggest need? Forgiveness of sin, redemption, salvation. Because this life is temporary. Hunger here and now is a temporary feeling. It's a temporary physical issue. But when people know Jesus, we know that even if in this life we are hungry, we don't have enough food to eat, one day we will be with God, and that that will no longer exist. And that's an awesome thought, isn't it? So they drop this guy down in front of Jesus, and there he is, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And immediately, these religious leaders, they erupt with condemnation. They, re- they erupt with frustration. They're like, Who, who's this guy like, saying he can forgive sins? And then Jesus knows their hearts. It says in the passage that they actually are thinking it to themselves because they're afraid to speak it out loud. But they make in themselves like, hey, he can't do this. And Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he says, just in case you didn't get it, guys, Go ahead and pick up your mat and walk too. And so he heals him spiritually and he heals him physically. And all the while, these guys, all they can think about is condemning Jesus and being down on someone who has just gotten healed. I mean, that's, that's, that's scary to me. That you could see somebody physically healed in front of you and be angry about it. Anybody with me? You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a spot where you were more concerned about your own agenda than God's. Sadly, because I grew up in the church, sadly because I've been around many, many Christians and places and contexts where it was all about behavior modification and externals, there have been times where in my own heart, rather than wanting people to experience Christ, I've been frustrated. I've been frustrated, mad. Like, those people don't deserve you, Jesus. Look at what they're doing. You know what? That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because every single one of us are messed up and need Jesus' compassion. In Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, says this way. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. Like, thank you, God. All of us need him. All of us need his compassion. But there is a tension in the church that if we're not careful, we will obey rules so that we can attain a status so that we can condemn everybody else. And that is directly from the mouth of the evil one. That is prideful, arrogant garbage. 
And we need to ask God to rescue us from that and to remember again his great compassion he's poured out on us. So here's the deal. Religion wants to condemn. Christ wants to show compassion. How do you know if this is what you believe? How do you know that you genuinely believe the good news that Jesus alone can save and that Jesus has shown you compassion and that it's not by your works that you earn his favor or his status, the right standing and status? Let me tell you, when you sin, when you blow it, do you run to him or run away from him? Where do you run? Most of my life, I've run away from God. You know why? Because I still think it's on me. I still think it's on me to perform. So when I blow it with my wife and I'm a total jerk, which she could tell you because she knows me better than anybody, I can be a jerk. Or when my kids, if I lose my temper over something silly, but just because I'm hungry or tired at the end of a long day, in those moments, I can find myself running away from God rather than to his grace. Knowing that he has forgiven, knowing that he has set free, and knowing that in that moment, even in my worst moments, he still sees me through the lens of the gospel, of what Christ has done for me that I could not do for myself. Isn't that an awesome reality today? That even in our worst moments, he still sees us as loved and accepted because of Christ. But here's the thing, here's the kicker. Even in our best moments, he still sees us through the lens of Jesus. Even when we have a great day, even when we are like husband of the year or wife of the year or worker of the year, even on our best attempts, at being righteous, we know it still falls short and yet he still sees us through the lens of Jesus. He's compassionate, he doesn't condemn, he grants us compassion. His sacrificial death in our place is the only thing that gives us right standing with God, not us. Okay, next thing, gotta move on. Religion is about control, Christ came to compel. Religion is about control and Christ came to compel. I really felt like last week, There were several times where I wanted to go and beat up somebody. I know it sounds really bad. I know. I'm just being honest. We would talk to people in these villages in Mexico, and I would hear the same thing over and over about these pastors, these leaders, these church leaders who were manipulating and scaring people into uh, following them. And they would tell them stuff uh, that would try to manipulate them to get them to give money to the church or to get them to support their family. And the whole while, these pastors, like they're just swindling people, like they're just lying to people right through their teeth, you know? And, and I literally, in the name of Jesus, I wanted to give them a punch in the throat, okay? I, because I'm like, listen guys, what is going on here? Like why are you guys taking these people and abusing them and using this way? And you know, the fact is, is that God reminded me that I can be the same way. That in my heart, I am broken and messed up too. And I just started praying for those men. God, would you please help them? Would you rescue them from this crazy behavior that they think that they've got to manipulate with fear to control people? You see, that's what religion does. Religion holds people captive. And we say things, even in the church, we make it sometimes about, you don't want to go to hell, do you? You don't want to spend eternity away from God, do you? Well, no, for sure I don't want to do that. I mean, absolutely I don't want to go to hell. But listen, I want you to understand that heaven is not just for those who don't want to go to hell. Heaven's for those who love God. Heaven's for those who say, God, we understand your great love for us. Not just that you've prepared a place for those who choose not to love you, but you've prepared a place for those who love you. And we get to be with you forever. You see, instead of control, we get to be compelled. 
That means that we don't do actions so that we can earn God's approval. We don't do our actions because we're afraid that God's going to strike us down or he's going to boot us out. We do those actions because we understand the greatness of his love for us. The goodness that he has poured out on us. Are you with me? Are you tracking? We're getting ready to come into Easter week. We're going to celebrate this. That he has done good things for us. And that because of that, we are compelled. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For Christ's love compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. You know why I want to tell my neighbors about Jesus? Because if I don't, Jesus is going to smack me down. Right? Are you guys guys with me? Because I want to tell them because Jesus is going to cut me off and say, hey, sorry, man, you can't be my child anymore, right? Just making sure you're with me, okay? Because in the United States, there are a lot of people who that's, that's the tactic is, hey, listen, if you really believe this stuff, then you know all that, then you're going to tell people about Jesus, right? And like, if not, you know, you're not really a Christian. Listen, the reason I want to tell people about Jesus is because he loves me. And I'm convinced at the heart, in my heart that he loves me. That he's been good to me beyond what I deserve. And I want people to know that. I want people to hear that message. I want people to see that lived out in my life, in my words, in my actions. And here's the thing. For those who think that um, using the law or using hell or using whatever to try to control people, to use that to manipulate people, it is a bad, bad motivator, isn't it? It's a bad motivator. Because ultimately, again, it's all about us. It's all about what we do. It's all about our performance. And that's not the gospel. That is not the good news of Jesus. He came so that we could see what he has done. He has fulfilled what we could not do. And not only that, but grace-driven effort, effort that comes in our lives that's fully motivated by the grace that God has shown us, man, it is a powerful, powerful motivator. In fact, the person who understands the gospel, they realize that as a new creation, our nature is, is in opposition, it's in opposition to sin now. We don't want to sin any longer because we realize that Christ died for our sin. We realize that, it just, that, that sin messes up our lives, that it, that it just brings pain and suffering, and that Christ brings life. And that motivates us to want to change, to be set free. Our eyes on, are, aren't on us, they're on Christ. And that changes everything. And real obedience is a result of love it's a result of love, God's love for us and our reciprocal love for him. I'm thankful for that today. Finally this, religion leads us to rely on ourselves, and Christ calls us to rest in his work. Anybody tired? Physically, maybe you're tired today. Anybody tired of trying to be a good person? Anybody tired of trying to measure up, trying to figure it out and like be good enough for God to love you or maybe even to meet your own standards? Because let's be honest, we're our worst critic. Even people who arrogantly sometimes on the surface level act like we've got it together, internally, when we're all alone, we hate ourselves. I know it sounds strong, but I know people who genuinely, they don't like themselves because they, they feel like, I, I just, I'm a screw up. I can, never, I can never make it. You know, religion leads us to rely more and more on ourselves, but Christ calls us to rest in his work. 
At its very core, religion is man-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. Religion is about what we do to justify ourselves or be made righteous, but Christ's work on the cross tells us that that's an impossible task, that only he can do it. Only he can rescue us so that we can be saved. Religion says do, and God says it's done. It says it's done. First, th- chapter 3 in Romans, verse 23, says it this way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all stop there. I've quoted that scripture for years. We all stop. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, we're all sinners. Okay, if square one in the gospel, we have to understand that we are sinful. We are broken. That we rebel against God. That we are selfish. That we are prideful. That if we had our choice, we would choose our way over God's way. But then he goes on to say, but they are justified, made right with God, okay, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say through our works. It says through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, many of us are experts at religiosity because somehow we've bought into the idea of it's Jesus plus works. It's Jesus plus I gotta be a good person. That's how we get God's approval. That's how we get to heaven. I want you to know it's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. It's him and what he's done on our behalf that saves us, that rescues us. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but I'd like to articulate it this way as we kind of think about closing out this time. Religion versus the gospel. Religion says that if you could take all of the religions, the organized religions in the world, and you could kind of articulate that we're all at the bottom of this mountain and we're trying to climb our way up, right? Trying to climb our way up through good works. Maybe it means going to a church gathering. Maybe it means taking communion. Maybe it means singing some worship songs. Maybe it means going on a mission trip. Maybe it means going on uh, a pilgrimage. Like when I'm over in Indonesia, uh, many people will go, they go to Mecca uh, for Islamic world. They have these different acts of things that, that, that service or, or different things that they would do to try to earn their way up the mountain, to climb up the mountain, right? So all these religions are basically trying to go up this mountain. And I hear this a lot that people say, well, look, all religions are basically the same. They're all trying to climb up the mountain to get to their point. And I want to say to you today that that's exactly the opposite of what we believe as Christians. Because my hope is not that I can climb up the mountain. It's the fact that Jesus came off the mountain, down to me, picked me up, put me on his shoulder, and carried me up to the top. Day one. And the rest of my days, I am grateful and full of awe that he would do that. And everything else is just an overflow of what Christ has done. I'm so humbled by that reality today. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what it says. And people will use this book to fear people into following God, to being a part of their church, to giving money, to being a good dad, to being a good parent. You know the greatest motivator, again, is the love of Christ, that he would come down off the mountain, pick us up, and carry us up when we could not do it on our own. I said at the beginning, as we were reading through the text, that it's a little odd that they included this story of the fig tree. Anybody else think it was a little bit weird? He's like, fig tree... And then the temple, he cleanses it, throws everybody's stuff over, which I love. I love seeing Jesus like that, you know, going at it. And then he comes back to this fig tree again. And you got to ask the question, like, why? Well, let me just tell you, I think what Mark is doing is he's giving us a visual. He's saying to the people of Israel, listen, you guys have decided that in and of yourself you can do it. You're this fig tree. You look the part. But you have no fruit. 
You have no fruit of true salvation because it's all about the externals. Your root is not rooted in Christ. It's not in God. It's not faith in him. Your faith is in yourself. And it says that when Jesus comes back by, he curses that fig tree, right? He curses it on the front end and comes back and it's dead and it's dying from the roots up. And it's a visual reminder for us that if our roots are in anything other than Christ, our lives are going to wither. We might look the part. We might come to church and do the church thing. We might be a good person. But at the end of the day, the only thing that will last is the fruit of true salvation, which is putting my hope, my life, my trust into Jesus Christ. He alone is sufficient. And the beautiful thing is, is that's a gift, not something I can earn. It's a gift I receive by faith. So today, I don't know your story. I don't know how long you've been in church or haven't been in church, but that's the story. That's the message of the gospel. That is the good news, that we are not just another religion trying to earn our way to God or to some sort of status, but Christ is sufficient to make us into who God designed us to be. be. That he didn't come to start a religion. He came to reconcile a relationship. That God didn't come to make bad people better. He came to make dead people alive. That's what Jesus has done. That's a big difference, isn't it? And I'm thankful today for that as we go into Easter week. Let's pray.